Father, we thank you for this day. This is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we pray this morning that you would feed us with your word and your sacrament, that we might be encouraged and strengthened to go into this week, to go into this world in the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Father's Day, and so I thought I'd begin by sharing a story of my own father. My dad was a federal judge, which made growing up in his household very interesting. Didn't win so many arguments. (laughs) He had a very meaningful career in the legal field, very interesting. Lots of uh, fascinating cases that he got to hear, but occasionally he got to perform other duties. As a judge, he was legally allowed to marry a couple, which he did from time to time, a rare place where his career and mine actually overlapped. He got to visit Washington, D.C. quite a bit. He served on the Automation Committee for the Federal Judiciary, which meant that he was charged with bringing the judiciary into the 21st century with their technology. But one of my dad's favorite duties was presiding at a naturalization service where he got to administer the oath of allegiance to people who were becoming citizens of the United States. I think it was a great honor for him to do this. My dad loved this country, and I think he enjoyed sharing its blessings and its benefits with those who had gone through that process to become a citizen. Last week, we looked at Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, and we considered in quite some length this idea of justification by faith. I want to suggest that justification by faith is our legal, our spiritual naturalization, because through it, we become legal citizens of God's kingdom. And as those citizens, we get to enjoy all of the incredible blessings of the kingdom. Romans 5, verse 1, Paul references that little phrase, justification by faith. But by doing so, he's looking back on four chapters of what he's been talking about. He begins his letter in chapters 1 and 2 by establishing the need for justification. He tells us that we have all, all fallen fallen short of the glory of God. Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. We're all in the same boat. We are not right with God. And nothing that we do by our own efforts could make us right with God. No matter how good we are, we are not good enough. And then Paul moves into chapters 3 and 4 where he reveals the great news of what God has done. Through Christ, specifically his work on the cross, God has made a way for guilty sinners to be made right with him. Not by being good, not by working hard at it, simply through faith through trusting in the promises of God, in what Christ has done for us. This is justification by faith. It's how we're made right with God. It's how we begin a relationship with Him. It's how we are made citizens of His kingdom. Through this justification, we have been naturalized. Once we were aliens and enemies cut off, now we are legal citizens. We belong, and this belonging carries with it incredible blessings and privileges. And so this morning, I want to consider three of those that Paul mentions in the opening verses of Romans 5. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Well, the first blessing that he mentions 
is peace with God. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how you experience that when you read that, but for me, it's a deep exhaling. In a world full of conflict and strife, externally, internally, we finally get to let it out because we have this peace with God. And I think the more an individual has experienced a lack of peace in in some area of life, it could be a relationship, emotionally, something in the way you engage with the world, the more we've experienced a lack of peace, the more we hear this verse as the good news that it is. We have peace with God. Paul does not say we will have peace with God, but we have it now. We possess it presently. Right now, we can enjoy the blessing that it is. Well, what is peace with God? We're accustomed to thinking about peace as inner tranquility. But the Bible usually defines peace relationally, not so much as an inner feeling. It goes back to the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. Shalom is a lot more than the absence of conflict, more than an inner feeling of peace. Shalom has to do with relationships. And if we go back to the beginning in the garden, when human beings rebelled, we see that four relationships were broken. The first, the one at the center of it all, was the relationship with God. We had peace with God. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. There was fellowship, harmony, shalom. Everything was set up for human beings to enjoy this peace with God. But we disobeyed. We took matters into our own hands and the peace was shattered. Shalom was vandalized. That was the central relationship. That was the relationship at the center of all creation. And once it was broken, all the other relationships began to unravel. And you see that happen very quickly. The second relationship that was broken was between human beings. Right away, no longer could Adam and Eve be naked and unafraid. All of a sudden, they had to cover themselves. They were aware of their vulnerability. And in the second generation, their children, we have the first murder. It didn't take long. Because once the relationship with the creator has been broken, everything else will fall apart. The third relationship was with ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, how we think about ourselves, how we interact with ourselves. Before the fall, we didn't have the ability to feel shame. But after the fall, we were cloaked with it. We lost peace within ourselves. And it's now possible for an individual to be at war within our own hearts and souls, with our minds, to be a divided self, where we don't feel secure in our own skin, where we do experience shame and self-loathing and self-hatred. The fourth relationship that was broken was with creation. We went from being stewards of the earth, cultivating it in all its riches, to living under a curse. The ground was actually cursed because of our disobedience. And our relationship with the earth is now one of pain. Now, most of us aren't farmers anymore. Some of us are gardeners or farmers. But the way we experience that on a daily basis is just in work, in in just interacting with the world and trying to do things. It just doesn't work like it was supposed to. We lost peace. So peace with God, peace with each other, peace with ourselves, and peace with creation, all of these were broken in the beginning. 
Now, Paul's not going to go back through each one of those, but in his letter to the Romans, he does reference all of those relationships in one way or another. But his main focus is on the core relationship, the one at the center of it all between human beings and the Creator. And so that's what he focuses on, Romans 5, when he says, we have peace with God. Because once that peace is restored, all the other relationships can come back together. If we have shalom with God, we can apply that and bring that shalom to every other area of our life. I think we understand this on a smaller scale, at least I know I have experienced it. Have you ever had a very core relationship in your life go haywire? Could be with your spouse, even just temporarily, you have a big fight, you don't see eye to eye. Could be with a child, with a parent, with a roommate, with a close friend. All of a sudden, it begins to affect your your feelings, your outlook. You bring that to work. You bring that to other situations. I know with me, when I'm off with Paisley, the core relationship of my life, I almost can't function. It's so central. But on the contrary, when we're on, when we have peace with each other, I feel like I can go conquer the world. Once we're at peace with the Creator, everything else is affected. Now, we still live in a fallen world, so it's not going to be perfect yet, but we have this unshakable peace of God with which we can engage the world, engage our work, engage one another. Paul concludes this first blessing by saying that we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's very careful to add these qualifiers. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Through his cross, he made peace possible. Before his cross, he actually told his disciples that he was giving them his peace. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. There is no other way to find peace except through our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot arrive at it through religion. You can't work hard enough to acquire it. The American dream won't secure it for us. It is through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only way to be at peace with God. And to be at peace with God is the only way to experience real and lasting peace in this life and in the life to come. Now, for many of us sitting in this room, we we know we're Christians, and yet we don't feel at peace. Maybe at this moment, maybe as we go about our days, we don't feel the level of peace that we want to feel. The peace Paul is talking about is not a feeling. It's a relationship that has been made right. And it's the result of something that God has done and we receive by faith. It's our new reality. And so if you're in Christ, you have peace with God, whether or not you experience it in the moment. But feelings are important. They're very important. They're how we engage with each other, ourselves, the world. And so part of the spiritual life is to cultivate an awareness of the reality that is. You're at peace with God. Live into that. Let it affect your emotions. Let it affect the way you relate to other people. But just because you don't feel it at the moment does not mean it is not there and that it is not real. The first blessing is peace. The second blessing of justification is grace. Paul writes this in verse 2. Through him, that is Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Into this grace in which we stand. Uh, In both English and Greek, the, the word grace has a wide range of meanings. And what we associate with it might not necessarily be what Paul is meaning by it. 
that he is not speaking about some generic idea of grace here. He has a very particular idea in mind, and that's why he says, this grace. It's not the first time in Romans he's spoken about grace. He's already referenced it as he explained justification by faith. So go back to chapter 3, verses 24, 25. He says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He goes on in chapter 4 just to help us understand grace, and he's contrasting grace with debt. Debt is something that we're owed. Salvation, he's telling us, is not a debt. It's not a something we're owed. It's gift. It's grace. If our focus is on getting what we deserved, what's coming to us, we don't end up with salvation. We end up with the wrath of God and the just condemnation of sin. So this grace that Paul is talking about is this free gift, what God has done, justification by faith. It's being made right with God through Jesus' work on the cross, not through our own efforts. Paul tells us in this little verse two ways that we get to enjoy this grace of God. First, he says, we have obtained access into it. What could he mean by that? Go back to Genesis 3. It's the um, most tragic chapter in all of human writing. And the last thing we read in that chapter is that God drove out the man from the garden, the place of fellowship, that place of shalom. And then not only did he drive him out, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword to do what? Block access. You can't come back into this place. You can't get back in. You're not allowed. You can't get to the tree of life again. And then we come and Paul says, you have access. You've obtained access. You can come back in. You can get back into the place of grace and favor with God. You were banished. You've been restored. That's access. The other thing Paul tells us is that we stand in that grace. We've obtained access into it in which we stand. See, if all we had was access, we had that before. We might wonder, well, when's that going to run out, right? You can get a ticket to go to a place, amusement park for a day, but it's only a day, right? You can enjoy access for a time, but then you got to get out when it closes. And so maybe we might be left thinking, well, I can get in to the favor and the grace of God for a time, but then I have to leave. My access will end. The sword will come back down. Will that happen? Paul says, no, no it won't, because you have standing as well as access. It's a new position that's been given to you. You can't lose it. Why? Because the security of this position of grace wasn't based on your behavior to begin with. It's justification by faith, not by behavior. You can't lose your standing in grace. The English preacher and theologian John Stott describes this so well. He says, Our relationship with God, into which justification has brought us, is not sporadic but continuous. Not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign or politicians with the public. No, we stand in it, for that is the nature of grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. What about when we sin? What about when we mess up our relationship with God in some way, doesn't that break fellowship? Don't, don't we then lose the standing? 
I think the best analogy to get our heads around this is that of a parent and a child. When a child misbehaves, disobedient, disrespectful, ungrateful, even rebellious, that will grieve the heart of the parent. And yes, it may make the parent mad. And yes, it will in some way affect the relationship. And yes, the parent may discipline or correct that child in some way. But at no point is the child disowned. They don't lose their standing as a member of that family. And that is the same is true of a child of God. Once we become his child through justification, we are in the family. And we may act up. But God is not going to kick us out because it wasn't dependent on our behavior to begin with. Are you beginning to sense the incredible blessings and privileges of justification by faith? It is not just a dry theological doctrine that people like to argue about. It is life itself. So far we have peace. We have grace. The third blessing is that we have a new joy. Look at the second half of verse 2. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So the joy or rejoicing being talked about here, it's of a particular kind. It's helpful to note that a more accurate translation of the word rejoice is to boast. And some of your translations might say that. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I think we can still use the word rejoice, which the ESV does, but we need to understand that it's a rejoicing, a joy, a happiness that comes up because of a particular accomplishment, something that has happened that we can take pride in, that we can feel good about, that gives us a certain type of joy. We, again, we experience this in little ways all the time. Friday morning, I mowed my lawn. It needed to be mowed. And it's hot and sweaty, it's a lot of work, but I enjoyed it. Why? Because it was a sense of accomplishment. And I could actually see if, like, I did something, and it feels good, and you feel good about your your house and your lawn after that. Sometimes we rejoice at our children's accomplishments. Now, we poke fun at the people who put the bumper sticker on their car that says, my child made honor roll at such and such elementary school. There's certainly a way in which parents can overdo it in bragging about and always getting our identity from our children, but... There's a very appropriate kind of joy, is there not? When, when our children achieve something, when they learn to read, when they uh, play a musical instrument for the first time, or maybe not so much that because it sounds bad, but over time, <laughs> say, oh, now that sounds good. When they get into college, that feels good. We, we take joy in that. We should. So this kind of joy, it comes from an accomplishment. That's a natural process for us. But if we're not careful it can spill into an inappropriate kind of rejoicing or boasting. Because when it comes to spiritual things and salvation, Paul is vehemently opposed to any boasting in our accomplishments. Why? Why can't we boast in spiritual things? Why can't we boast in, hey, I've gotten really good at being good. Why can't I take a little bit of pride in how well I keep the rules? Why can't I rejoice in my committed involvement in the local church? They're good things, right? make me feel good about myself. The reason, Paul tells us, is that when it comes to salvation, our spiritual accomplishments profit us nothing. They don't add one thing to salvation. Your good works can't save you. They can't get you into the right relationship with God. Furthermore, 
your good works, if they don't come from the grace of Christ, from the inspiration of the Spirit, from the fruit of faith, they're not even good. And so we have no reason to boast in our spiritual accomplishments. They don't save us. But there is an accomplishment, one that saves us, and we have every reason to boast in it. It is the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross. In John's account of Good Friday, he tells us that just before Jesus gave up his spirit, he said the words, it is finished. He had done something. Something was finalized. A work was done. He accomplished our salvation on the cross. It's the one thing that he could do to make us right with God. We didn't do it. We couldn't do it. Jesus did it. It was his accomplishment, and we have received the benefits of it through faith, through trusting in promises. That's what Paul means by justification by faith. But now, as the result of this justification, we have this new cause for rejoicing. And it is the joy that comes from an accomplishment. Jesus is not ours. That's the foundation of our rejoicing. And it is very appropriate to boast in it, to celebrate it, to brag about it, if that's the right word. For Jesus has done it. So that's the background of this new rejoicing that Paul tells us about in Romans 5. The words he uses, though, is that he can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because of justification, he's got that as his foundation, he can now look forward in hope to the glory of God. Apart from justification, no hope, no glory. But now he can look forward to it, confidently, to experiencing God's glory, his beauty, his kindness now and in the age to come. It's not a flimsy hope. That's what he's going to go on and establish. It's not just wishful thinking. That's a worldly way of how we describe hope. Oh, I hope I I might get into college. No, it's a hope secured by the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross. And then we're given this guarantee of the Holy Spirit. It's a guaranteed hope. Paul can't stop there. So secure is the hope, so good is the hope, that it spills into this other area where we, we don't typically associate with hope which is suffering. In verse 3, he says something very strange. Not only that, but we rejoice, we boast in our sufferings. Who does that? Who, who, who brings up their, their, their bad things, their trials, their tribulations, and makes those a source of bragging, of boasting, of joy? Christians do. Why? Not because we value suffering in and of itself. We can see suffering for the evil that it is, just like the world can. We're not masochists. No, we rejoice in suffering because we know what a sovereign God does with it. He uses it for our good. Verse 3 and 4, Paul says, We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces something. It produces endurance. It produces character. And then ironically, it brings you back around and produces hope. You get more hope by suffering. I was trying to imagine this. What, what this kept coming to me in my mind was a balloon. God uses suffering to inflate our souls like a balloon and stretches. It hurts. We don't like it. But what happens is that we have greater and greater capacity to contain all of the hope that he wants to pour into it. We don't want to be stretched. We're afraid our souls might just pop. But God knows what he's doing. He wants to expand our souls 
because he has so much more good and more good and more good that he wants to put into us. And in this life, suffering's the way that he expands our capacity to hold it. So we rejoice even in our suffering. Friends, if you have placed your faith in the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross, you have been naturalized into God's kingdom. You're a legal citizen now. And now you get to enjoy all of the blessings of the king and his kingdom. And there are many, many more than I've mentioned today. So many that it will take all of eternity for God to show us all of his grace and kindness to us in Jesus. But Paul has told us about three very beautiful ones that we get to enjoy now and forever. Peace with God, access and standing in his grace, and joy at his accomplishment which secures our hope even through suffering. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. Sometimes we don't even realize at first glance at the cross, at Jesus, of all that was happening, of all the depths and the layers of love and of wisdom and of goodness that you were doing on our behalf. Father, I pray this morning for those of us for whom this idea has grown a little stale, that you would make it alive, that you would inspire our worship, that you would bring us to tears at your love. For those of us who do not know this love of a father, who do not know what it means to be part of your kingdom, that you would open eyes this morning by the power and working of your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these blessings and benefits. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.